you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Maybe you're new to the Bible. We just gave you one this morning. You can find a table of contents and then you'll be able to find Matthew 24. And as you're turning there, I have a few comments by way of introduction. A whole lot has been said in the name of Bible prophecy. Multiple millions of dollars have been made off of fictionalizing it. Countless hundreds of people have set dates about it, despite the prohibition in the Bible against that. Fourth-rate movies have been made about it. Some have even forgotten the essentials of the gospel due to being overly consumed with it. And I have to admit before you that having been exposed to all of these sorts of things and having been rather jaded by them, When I hear someone having a conversation about Bible prophecy, I'm not naturally inclined to get involved in the conversation. I'm not a prophecy aficionado, though I've read I don't know how many books on the matter. I'm not what I call an eschatologian, one who specializes in eschatology, given the fact that the Bible says the gospel is of utmost importance to us. But nevertheless... Given the fact that Jesus gives the longest answer he ever gives to any question he's ever asked, at least that is recorded for us in Scripture, and that it's in relationship to Bible prophecy, perhaps I need to do a little repenting. I need to be careful, and I trust some of you need to be careful too, that yes, perhaps you've been a bit jaded and you've been so exposed to abuses in the name of Bible prophecy that it leaves such a bad taste in your mouth that you, quite frankly, want to have nothing to do with it. That's kind of how I'm feeling in my Christian life right about now, to be honest. But just as I think eschatologians and prophecy dudes need to do some repenting, and they need to own the gospel because I'm afraid too many of them wouldn't know justification if it bit them. I think I probably need to do a little repenting too because the Bible does say I'm supposed to, to be ready. The Bible does say I'm supposed to have an eager expectation. And so prophecy is good for me as a Christian. So I'm not sure where you are and all of that, but I would encourage you, yes, to understand justification, yes, to make the Bible or the gospel first priority, but to know that the Bible talks a lot about Christ coming again. Well, that causes me to want to be thankful that we're in Matthew chapter 24 this morning. We'll look at Matthew 24 and 25. It's that long answer that Jesus gives to a simple question. But before we jump into the gospel according to Matthew in the 24th chapter, we do need to review just a bit. In chapter 23, what leads into 24 is perhaps one of, certainly one of the harshest diatribes, if you will, that Jesus ever engages in. Jesus is very, very, very harsh in Matthew 23, pronouncing his infamous woes. In fact, it is so harsh and so intense that someone said to me after I was done preaching on Matthew 23, they said, that was so heavy. It makes me feel so bad. I'm so looking forward to next week when we get to Matthew 24. (laughs) Well, it's been months, and so I'm sorry if you've racked up uh, pharmaceutical bills in the process of feeling bad or anything like that, but we're finally back to Matthew 24, and uh, 
we'll see that hopefully you can get over your depression and you'll see that Jesus is, is beyond the woes at this point in time. All joking aside, it, it makes sense that Jesus pronounces the woes in Matthew 23 if you've read 1 to 22. Because if you've read Matthew 1 through 22, and I would certainly encourage you to read the Gospels in, in less sittings than more, because you can sit down and read through the Gospels, the big picture makes more sense, and you read through, uh, read through the Gospel according to Matthew, and you read those first 22 chapters, and you are impressed. I mean, you just can't help, unless you have a hostility and a bent toward being against Jesus, you're just impressed. You just can't help but be impressed because you see that he's, he's the great one and you see that he's, he's the great one, as it says in chapter 1, who would come to save his people from their sins. He's the great Savior. He's the great Messiah, the great Messiah, the great one who would come, the great anointed one who would come and he would be the great King and he would be the great Savior. He would be the great ruler. It's really quite amazing. And then, as you're reading... As you are impressed with the greatness of Jesus, you're going to be equally impressed in an altogether different category. Because at every juncture, at every turn, the religious leaders are opposing Him. And, and, and you just can't help yourself when you get to chapter 23. I believe if you're a follower of this Jesus Christ follower of Jesus Messiah, by the time you get to 23, there's something in you that isn't depressed by the woes. You're saying, finally! You're saying, that's right! The religious hostiles against Jesus, and they need to be silenced. They need to be put in their place. But Jesus doesn't just pronounce His terrible woes of condemnation. Look with me, if you would, at the end of 23. We do see His compassionate nature we see him after pronouncing the woes in, in verse 23 or 37 of 23 Jesus says Jerusalem Jerusalem just for sake of interpretation you the ones who've been boasting that you've been waiting for Messiah that everything you do in life you've been saying has been waiting for me Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. This, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. This is crazy. It just reveals your true heart. And then he says in verse 37, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her ducks under her wings and, and, and you were unwilling. You religious leaders, you, you've been keeping... You've been keeping your children from me. You, you leaders, you, you leaders are most detested, most detestable. You're supposed to be leading them in the way, in the way of Messiah, as you've been saying you are, but you're not doing that. Verse 38, Jesus says, Behold, as a result of that, behold your house, your dwelling place, you as a people, your house is being left to you desolate, same word for a desert, a barren wasteland. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you, who's he talking to? The leaders of Israel, Jerusalem, according to verse 37. So it is Israel, until you, Israel, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is to say, until the day comes when, when, when you see me for who I really am, 
until the day comes when you as a people acknowledge me as the very one who I've proven to be. Judgment for you. Judgment for you, Israel. The Messiah is pronouncing judgment upon them. And that's a downer. You read through your Bible and, and, and you, you say, this is wrong. It is wrong. Thus, the judgment. They should have been welcoming Him. They should have been embracing Him. They've been boasting of waiting for Him. So Jesus pronounces His, his judgment upon them. And then, let's progress in verse 1 of 24. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. So we have a transition. Let's get into our new text here. And so the disciples are coming to Jesus in private and they're pointing out the temple and they're pointing out the buildings and they're pointing out all that's around it. And listen to this. Here's Mark's account. Mark 13:1. They said, Teacher, behold... What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It's pretty interesting in light of what Jesus just did. They're saying, look, just look how amazing this is. Look how how magnificent all of this is. And then in verse 2 it says, and he said to them, do you not see all these things? Now, I'll admit I'm speculating here. But I take that as Jesus to say, yes, indeed, I see In fact, let me invite you to even look closer at the beauty. Let me invite you to look at the detail even more closely. He's setting them up. Not in a malicious way. Yes, look at their magnificence. Only to say what he says in the latter part of the verse. Truly I say to you. That is to say, mark my words, it will happen. Ready for this? Not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. They're amazed by the beauty. All the building that had been done for God and Messiah. And Jesus says, Mark my words. Note the beauty. Not one stone will be left. Wow. This is nothing shy of what I would call a death sentence for Israel. Why would Jesus do this? Well, He would do this because they're worse than Messiah rejectors. They're the leaders who have built massive, ornate testimonies boasting of the fact that they are the ones who belong to Yahweh. They are the ones who belong to the one true God. And they're awaiting Messiah to come and rescue them. And they're dedicated and they're committed. It's all an external facade. It's worse than being a Messiah rejecter when everything outside of you says, we're Messiah embracers. And they're leading the people in this. I won't have a lot of direct application today in today's sermon, and usually I feel very compelled to offer that. So I will say, this is the same Jesus that we deal with today. He hasn't changed. He's not impressed with the externals when the internals are dead. 
And that's something that we know is true of Christ here. We know it's true of him when we read even in the later parts of the New Testament. Let's always remember. Let's have it in our minds. That Jesus isn't impressed with people who talk a lot about Jesus. If it's not genuine, if it's not the real thing. And we should be haunted by this. Yes, we can say, we're not Israel. Oh, yes, they were so messed up. Let's not be so self-pious as to think somehow we can't talk a lot about Jesus and do a lot of things and build big buildings and all that kind of stuff and think somehow that guarantees that we're for Him. It could actually be worse. His unreserved disapproval of them. His outrage against them. Now I have a question for you as we're working our way through this passage. And and that is, what do you think the disciples are thinking along about now? Now, I have to share my opinion again because it doesn't explicitly say. But as I'm reading the flow of the passage, here's what I think is happening. Again, my opinion. I think if Jesus would have said this some time ago to them, and we would have known what the disciples were thinking, they wouldn't have liked it. No, you're Messiah, and and, and destroy the temple? This doesn't make sense, and this is all wrong. And that would have been generally what's been happening with the disciples up until now. And I'm not saying they've got it all figured out by now, because they don't. But I think it's come to the point now where they at least understand enough to know that Jesus is singing their song. They've seen how corrupt Israel is. And they see this actually as something they want to have happen because it will then mean Jesus is acting as Messiah, as King, even though you have to have destruction in order to get there. And so I mention that because I think it makes an impact on the way you read this. I think it's, it's eager expectation that leads us to verse 3. If you look with me at Matthew 24, verse 3, and you'll see there it says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? I I think they're enthusiastic. This this is going to be messianic glory. Yes, it's going to be bad for the temple, but this is actually a good thing that is going to happen. Now I have to do what I hate to do. I've got to break stride in my sermon. You know, I feel like I'm rolling. I'm ready to go. I mean, I've had my, I had a sugar-free Red Bull and a protein bar right before I came out for the service. I'm ready. I'm feeling the flow. Let's keep moving. And I, I just want to keep going. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break homiletical flow and say, we need to pause for a minute. And I hate to do it. I'd like to just keep going. But I, I also hate to be one of those people that has an elephant in the room and you pretend like it's not there. So... There is an elephant in the room, and we need to just pause and rudely interrupt the passage, and, and, and we need to say, now, as many of you know, most of you know, Matthew 24 and 25, there's lots of debate about Matthew 24 and 25. That's the elephant in the room. I just pointed it out. We need to talk about that a little bit. I don't think Jesus is confused, but <laughs> we're not Jesus. And so we say, well, what is he getting at here? There is debate about Matthew 24 and 25. And what I would like to do as fast as I can. And by the way, I did 30 some verses this first hour. So we're really going to get things moving here pretty fast. So tighten your seatbelts and uh, get out the WD-40 for your Bible because it's going to really be moving. Because I can feel the Red Bull flowing. <laughs> 
And now there's precedent. It's called first service. So anyway, all of that said, we need to talk a little bit about this. And, and I just want to say a couple of things. First of all, I want to just talk about the fact that this is debated amongst Christians. Okay? And then I want to talk about the view that I'm going to take. First of all, let's acknowledge that within our camp, this isn't a debate between those who believe the Bible and those who reject the Bible. This isn't a right versus left kind of thing. Within our camp, within this fellowship, within uh, the, the, the authors that you read and that I read and that we have in our bookstore and even uh, people who are here in this auditorium, those of us who believe and we love Jesus Christ and we believe in His finished, perfect, atoning work on the cross, His substitutionary work on our behalf and His resurrection on our behalf, and that the only way to be right with God is only based upon, uh, solely based upon the work of Christ. And we will go to the wall for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we share that fellowship and we will die for that. We will go to the wall for that. I will fight for that if need be. Amongst us, we have disagreements about Matthew 24 and 25. So I simply want to make the observation and the suggestion that we should show some charity. That's where I'm coming from. I think we're all going to learn a thing or two in heaven. Now let's not have it be some sort of fake humility and say somehow we can't understand anything because we're all so humble. <gasps> you know, that's false, false humility. Let's not do that. But really amongst us, there's good, fervent disagreement. And I simply would like to suggest, while I have a view that I want to be careful uh, about needing to battle over everything, I'm going to battle over the gospel and over those essentials of the faith, but this is not one where I really want to give my life uh, to battling over. And that's really been the heartbeat of the church. So I would encourage you to have the same kind of attitude personally. There have been t- I, I want to say more, but I can't. We're going to stop there for now because I've got to keep going. Now, let me tell you the view that I'm going to take. The big, the big issue, and I know there are more issues involved, but the biggest issue ends up being, is what Jesus says in Matthew 24 dealing with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70? Or is he dealing with, is this second coming kind of stuff, future second coming stuff? Now, I realize there's some blends and some stuff like that, but just for now, let's just talk about the, the, the two extremes, if you will. I believe that the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was a result of Israel's rejection of Messiah and it most certainly was something that they bore as a result of the judging hand of God. I mentioned that in my sermon on Matthew 23. But I believe Matthew 24 and 25, my perspective is dealing with the future. The thrust, the emphasis, the majority, if you will, he's looking at a future, still future event, even for us, when he that, that surrounds the, the, the return of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the second coming. And so that's the approach I'm going to take as we work through this. I'll give you some reasons for that. But just so you know, I'm reading this as Matthew 24 and 25. This is not something that already happened. It didn't in the majority already happen. The majority of this is in reference to things that are still happening, are going to happen in the future, even for us. Let me give you a couple of reasons why I think that is the case. And so you might understand where I'm coming from, and then we'll get things moving. And by the way, once, we do, once we're done with this, guess what I'm going to do? My sermon is going to be reading the passage with a few comments. But if you, you set it up, this isn't very hard. You just read it and make some comments. Thus, I will go really fast. 
But let's get ourselves there. Why, why would we take the view? Why would I take the view uh, that this is in reference to the second coming that is still yet future? Well, one reason, I'll just give you a couple, is because the, the events surrounding A.D. 70 don't seem to match what Jesus says in verse 21. Look with me, if you would, at verse 21. Again, we're rudely interrupting the sermon, but we're trying to understand something here so we can understand the passage better. But the, the events of 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple that no doubt happened, don't seem to match certain parts of this. For example, verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. And then notice what he says at the end, nor ever will. If these events happened in AD 70, then we would have to assume that no tribulation ever can happen that is worse than that afterward. Okay? Now let's zero in on Israel. Let's look at AD 70 for a moment and then we could look at historians and they could say somewhere around a million Jews were executed. That would have been horrific and bad. I don't want to slight that. It would have been horrendous. It would have been terrible. The question then is, has there been worse tribulation since AD 70? Let's be more specific. How about aimed specifically at the Jews since AD 70? Well, the answer to that is yes, even in some of your lifetime. Somewhere around 6 million Jews, two-thirds of all Jewish men, women, and children were exterminated in the Holocaust. Now, we could debate about whether or not it's legitimate for me to bring that up. I think it is, or I wouldn't have brought it up. But if we're talking about apples to apples, and Jesus is talking about AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, and he says no event worse than that will ever happen, then Jesus is wrong. And I don't think he's wrong. I think he's aiming at something that is beyond AD 70. And another reason I would give for believing that, another reason would be AD 70 doesn't match in my opinion, with what Jesus says in verses 29 and 30. Look at 29. Jesus says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Now, I realize that if you're in the other camp, you'll say, well, that coming there perhaps is a cloud coming. And in all Christian love, I don't buy it. I think when it says they'll see Him, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, it's not what happened in AD 70. It's second coming that is still yet future. Those are the kind of passages, those are the kinds of things that caused me to say this didn't happen in AD 70, even though that was the judgment of God upon them. There is something far greater coming in the future. And it's because of passages like this. Those kinds of passages end up being deal killers for me in the AD 70 view. Now, let's be fair. We're almost to the passage again. Try to be fair at least. And say... Why would anybody believe that it happened in 8070? Well, you know what? There's actually a couple of decent arguments. Let me give you one of them. Look at verse 34. Here we are reading the passage. This is why we need to be humble because, you know, this passage is a hard passage to understand. 
Verse 34, truly I say to you, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Seems like he's talking to the disciples and people who were alive during the disciples' time. If that's all I had to go on, I'd say, you know what, I'd do the 80-70 view. But there's enough evidence that we've already looked at that causes me to say, eh, I'm not totally convinced yet. This is really hard. I'll grant I need humility. Is there anything else that could mean? Well, people like Carl Laney, some of you are familiar with his writing, he says it could be translated, this race. Yeah, it could. Other people who believe that it's talking about yet, yet coming future believe it's talking about uh, addressing those people who will be alive during that time. Some of you carry a MacArthur Study Bible. That's the view that he takes. I would side with that. He says, This cannot refer to the generation living at the time of Christ. For all these things, the abomination of desolation, the persecution of judgments, the false prophets, the signs in the heavens, Christ's final return, and the gathering of the elect, did not take place in their lifetime. It seems best to interpret Christ's words as a reference to the generation alive at the time when those final hard labor pains begin. This would fit the lesson of the fig tree, which stresses the short span of time in which these things will occur. And then one other support for the 80-70 view. And again, I'm just saying, when I read through it, that's why it takes so long to figure out and you pull your hair out. You can see what I did to myself. (laughs) Jesus is talking to the disciples. You don't get any hint of him talking about some future generation. That creates an interpretive problem. But there's still enough weight in these are worldwide catastrophic events. Everyone will see him coming in the clouds kind of things. That causes me to say, well, is there any precedent for someone talking to individuals directly, but the application will actually be fulfilled with someone else? And the answer to that is yes. It wouldn't be the first time. There are Old Testament examples like Isaiah 33, Isaiah 66. Zechariah 9, where people are being addressed as individuals or peoples, but the fulfillment of what is being told to them actually happens at a later time with other people. So, glad we are all prophecy experts now and we have this all figured out. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Don't think so. But, having laid all that out, I'm not asking you to agree or disagree. Let's be humble about it. Now at least you'll understand what I'm aiming toward. It's not a unique view. It's probably even the majority view amongst evangelicalism, which says nothing. (laughs) We're talking about future second coming events. With that in mind, you ready to go fast? We're going to go fast because I can't quit this sermon without talking about my favorite thing in the world to talk about that's going to cause me to repent of all my bad feelings about prophecy. I won't tell you what it is. But we're going to get there after we get to about 30 some odd verses. Okay? You ready? All right, here we go. With all that in mind, they've asked him this question. When is this going to happen, Jesus? When? They're excited. They've they've got the the, the messianic, uh, you know, they're salivating. And in verse 4, Jesus says, and it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Notice the many and the many. Many false messiahs will come. That They will characterize the day, and they will be quite effective. Then we move on. Verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that 
You are not frightened, for those things must take place, but they, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. I don't think he's talking about the natural earthquakes we've been seeing that we saw in the Old Testament, that we see during the time of Jesus. There's something extraordinary, and you can even jot down a marginal note. Here's one of the reasons why. Luke's account of the same thing, Luke 21:11, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So this is extraordinary. It's not normal earthquakes. It's not normal famines. There's something unique and, and beyond uh, norm here. Then verse 8, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. As as if it couldn't get worse. Yes, it's going to get worse. Verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then verse 10, at that time, many will fall away. That is, many will go apostate. Many who profess to be followers of Messiah will walk away from following Messiah. That's what happens in any time, in, 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 in any era where there's great persecution uh, against those who follow Christ. There is a falling away. It's a purging. It's a purifying effect. That's what persecution does. Verse 10 goes on to say, and will betray one another and hate one another. These are the professing followers of Messiah. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Did you notice? We already saw many false Christs. They will mislead many. Many false prophets. They will mislead many. Verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Some of you have a translation that says because sin or wickedness which would seem to to, to fit the the idea better, because sin, because wickedness is increased during that time, most people's love will grow cold. You might want to tuck that away somewhere in your, 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 your bag of biblical theology when you want to counsel people. Sinfulness increases. What happens to love? Decreases. Pretty interesting. It'll happen there. That's just a truism Jesus is getting at. It'll certainly is going to happen here. Then verse 13, But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. You say, that doesn't fit my theology. Well, guess what? Take it up with Jesus and get in line. The one who endures till the end, he will be saved. And if that's not clear enough, Jesus said this very same thing in Matthew 10:22. You will be hated by all because of my name. So the pressure will be great. But it is the one who has endured till the end who will be saved. This doesn't counter salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, but it certainly says if you have been saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, you will endure. And it's a sustained endurance. And Jesus is acknowledging that here. Now you might be thinking it's gotten so bad, it's so heavy, you might think, oh, it's as if there's no good thing happening during this great tribulation. Well, keep reading. Verse 14. This gospel, we just talked about being saved. This gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that saves, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and, they, and then the end will come. Don't think somehow that this is so bad that nothing good is happening. Even during this treacherous, horrific time, uh, what's going to happen? The gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is proclaimed even, uh, could we say, at unprecedented levels? To the point where, did you notice where he says, to all the nations? 
It's pretty interesting. He just got done condemning the Jews for their rejection of Messiah. And yes, that is in fact the case. But you know what? What happens now? It's to all the nations. And it's going to be at a national level, all the nations level, all ethnos level during this time that is really quite unheard of. And then the end will come. It's not saying all the nations will be saved. It's not saying that that all the nations will believe the gospel. But did you see? They will all hear. What are they going to hear? They're going to hear that Jesus is the king. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one who is to be adored and worshipped, whether they believe it or not. And then Jesus speaks of a unique sign. A unique sign that will signal the end getting close. Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation... Remember they said, what's the sign? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then he says, let the reader understand, which most would understand to mean, this is talked about in the Old Testament, so I don't need to elaborate on it. You know what this is talking about. He's saying, you want to see a significant sign that the end is near? It's during the abomination of desolation. You could translate that the abomination which leads to desolation. Abomination is something that is severely idolatrous, something that is severely bad and anti-God. It is blasphemous. The abomination which leads to desolation. Desolation means emptiness. This is, this is taken from Daniel where it would talk about the temple, where, where the temple would be defiled and it would be so messed up with ungodliness that it wouldn't be usable anymore. That They would abandon it. There's all kinds of debate about what this is talking about as far as when. Really, we've already dealt with those issues. There are actually some who would believe this happened before Jesus' time, but that wouldn't make Jesus' statement uh, make any sense because he's talking about something still yet future. That's because of what Daniel 11 says when it's talking about something that has happened and it's referred to as the abomination of desolation. Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem in the second century. He sacrificed a pig on the altar from what we read in history. And he set up a statue of Zeus and he used it as a brothel. Well, that would have been an abomination of desolation. But Jesus is talking about something here that is still future. And I believe what we've already talked about leads us to believe that this isn't even the, the, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 as bad as that would have been. I think that fits with verse 19 that says it's the worst event ever. It fits with the interpretation, uh, uh, what I would consider a straightforward uh, interpretation of the second coming statements of verses 24 and 27. Uh, It fits with the prerequisite of first preaching the gospel to all the nations, verse 10. And I think it fits what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, which I think he's referring to as something the Antichrist will do in the future. It's the desecration of the temple. And I'm not going to re-preach Revelation 13, but I think he's talking about what will happen in the future there. It's the same event. So when you see the abomination of desolation, that's, that's a key sign. Then verse 16, let's pick it up again in Matthew 24. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When, when that happens, if you're around, you need to flee. You need to get out of town. Verse 17, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get his things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on Sabbath. He's saying it's going to be bad enough. You, you, you'd want to pray and hope for your circumstances to not make it even worse. Because it's going to be hard to escape what's going to happen at that time. And this signals that, the abomination of desolation. And here's why, verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation. 
such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It's going to be hellacious. It's going to be the worst event ever to ever happen. It says something pretty profound in verse 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's a pretty interesting perspective. It's going to be so bad. But that's a statement of God's love, ultimately, for those He had chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 23, Then, during the great tribulation, when all hell seems to be breaking loose, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. Well, what's Jesus saying here in the flow of this context? When you really need to have someone rescue you, when you are hopeless if you're living during that time, and everything is wrong, and everything is upside down, and you are desperate, and you want to have someone say, you've got this messianic expectation for the return of Christ that is burning within you, and you hear someone say, there's rumors of the Messiah spotted in such and such a place. Remember Jesus started by answering this question, how will we know when you're coming and what will the sign be? And Jesus is saying, when you hear rumors of me coming, don't go. Don't listen. And there's a reason why he's going to get to that. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. Note that they can do them so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Note the if possible. Jesus has already said what He said in John chapter, John chapter 6, John chapter 10. This is impossible. But he, again, He's emphasizing the fact that it is going to be so bad and they're going to be so good at doing false miracles. They're going to be so good at deceiving that if it were possible, can you imagine? Even the elect would be deceived. That's why, but He gives more reason. And I can't wait. We're getting to this because it's going to become more clear. Verse 25, Behold, I have told you in advance. You ask the question, I'm giving you the answer. So if they say to you, Behold, He's in the wilderness. Do not go out. Nor behold, Or behold, He's in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. And here's why. 27, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What does He mean by that? Just as you can see the lightning flash from one end of the sky to the other, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. You don't need to listen to people say, He's over here. Oh no, contrary uh, conflicting reports, He's over here. When Jesus Christ comes back, Everyone will see. Everyone is going to see. There will be no debate. There will be no question. You don't need to try to follow the false reports because it will be as plain as the eye can see. It will be unmistakable. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now that's one that will cause you to scratch your head if you take it out of the context. I read that and go, what? What? But if you just keep it real close to verse 27, I think the best option to understand that would be 
everyone will see. Just like when there's a dead animal, how do you know where the dead animal is? Everyone knows where the carcass is. Why? Because the birds are flying above. Now, why Jesus used that particular analogy here, I don't know. Perhaps it's because of the bloodbath. Perhaps it's because of all the death and destruction. But I think the best way to take it, and his point is, simply an, an elaboration on verse 27. It will be visible to everyone when Jesus comes again. Verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And here's my favorite part. This is why I had to go so fast and we had to cover so much or I would be depressed all week. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. I think the sign is the Son Himself. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. But what I love is in verse 30. All the tribes will mourn and they will see. That is, all of them will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great authority. This is what causes me to say, okay, I'm going to repent and say, I might just read another book on eschatology. This causes me to say all the bad taste in my mouth because of the abuses. You know what? This has been a great passage in my life for me to, to say, all right, I overreacted. You know what? I do love eschatology. Provided we're not talking about Charts, graphs, colors, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. I love eschatology, the coming of Christ, because when He comes, how is He going to come? With all power. And what did it say there at the end of verse 30? And great glory. Oh, yes. Yes! This is what it's all about. Ultimately, it's not about all of the other stuff, as good and as important as that might be. The coming of Jesus Christ is ultimately aiming toward this one great end, and that is Jesus Christ on full display for everyone to see, whether they be His friend or His foe, to reveal His great power and what? His glory. It glorifies Jesus Christ. To have him come again. I love prophecy. You should love prophecy too. Because we as believers love the coming of Christ. Because we love to see his glory manifested more than we love anything else in life. So if you would, let's talk about the details offline. But let's do what they always tell you in the speech class. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> I need to keep it simple, stupid, Pat. Ultimately, it's great because it will glorify Christ because everyone will see that He really is who He said He was. And Omaha Baptist Church said in unison, Amen! Well, we'll get to the Baptist part some other day, maybe. We do have a uh, quarterly meeting afterward. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that was Baptist joking. So let's pray. Let's be done. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jesus Christ, that we can glorify Him, and, and we can glorify Him even by looking into these things that we believe are yet future, that we're waiting for. And Lord, may we consider ourselves uh, remiss of our Christian devotion and passion if we're not ultimately singing about this.
that Christ is to be exalted, Christ is to be glorified, and that is what we long for as believers. We long for it now as a church, as Christian individuals, even as we're proclaiming the excellencies of Christ right now as we live. We long for His return as He can be glorified in that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.